80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com. Elevators and escalators building transportation is the most utilized form of public transportation in the United States with over 100 billion rides. So that's over 2.8 billion miles ridden every year. Compared to three quarters of that number is how many miles are driven on a highway each year. Okay, cut the music. Look, I need to tell you a story regarding the episode you're about to listen to. And it all starts with how we pick locations once a guest is signed up for 80 proof politics so they give me recommendations right and i will go talk to the managers at those locations and say hey we're here to do a podcast we'd like to schedule a date in the future all i need is a table you know i pay for all food and drinks you don't worry about that and we want to do it at a time that's not too busy for you and we're going to promote your location at the start of the episode nine times out of ten that's all it takes. They're on board, 100%. That sounds great. Let me know what we can do to help, all that. Well, that's exactly the response I got when I booked a table at the location where we recorded this episode. In fact, when I showed up the day of the recording, they could not have been nicer. The hostess was walking me back to the table. She's like, hey, would you put in a plug for this? And we really appreciate you doing this. Said, great. My guest shows up, we start the conversation, and then this happens. So my college just ran something past me. So these kind of things, they're saying they always have to kind of be ran by corporate. My boss will be here in about 30 minutes. We probably should just kind of cease and desist until he comes in. So we waited. Five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. The guy never shows. Thankfully, we just kind of left the recording button on and what you're about to hear is not a podcast recording but simply a conversation between two old friends catching up and it's a real shame because i used to love this place it was a favorite of mine throughout the 90s and i was not the only one in town who felt that way i was going to tell you about their dry age steaks that they grill in the shadow of the Capitol, and about this fantastic drink with pineapple slices swimming in vodka, but no, no, not going to do any of that. But I do hope you enjoy the conversation. I want to welcome Amy Blankenbiller to 80 Proof Politics, a dear old friend who I've known since we both got our start on Capitol Hill, working for a member of the House, uh, let's just say before this location opened up. Amy, welcome. Great to see you. Thanks, Bill. I'm so excited to be here and reconnect with you after a few years that we've been able to meet in person and see one another. And I'm excited to dive into 80s Proof and talk about what's going on in my world and your world. And hopefully it'll be entertaining. I have no doubt about that. That's exactly why we're here. So Amy is the executive director of National Elevator Industry, Inc., which is based in Topeka. And I got to tell you, Amy, when I think of Kansas and elevators, I've got in my head this picture of 
a grain elevator like you and I would have seen driving around growing up in the heartland. But that's not NEII, is it? You're going to set me straight. I am. So the reason that NEI is in Kansas is because our entire staff team is remote and has been for probably 20 years. I've been working with the National Elevator Industry Incorporated for a little over 13. And once I took over as executive director in 2020, we had to change the address. And so now the address is actually my home office. So I do a lot of... So you were remote work before remote work was cool. Exactly. My staff joked about, how do we get a break during COVID? And I was like, you don't. You're used to working remotely. So they didn't get much of a break at that time. Now you've been ED for three years, just about, but you've been with it, like you said, a lot longer. You were VP of Government Affairs. Tell me what you did in that role first. So the National Elevator Industry Incorporated has been around since 1935. They were incorporated in New York City, which makes sense. That's the highest density of elevators per population in the United States. The government affairs program, however, did not start until they hired me. So they were looking to expand beyond building code and construction code development and move into the adoption, enforcement, inspection, relationships with the jurisdictions, the states, the federal government. So they brought me in, and I really got to create a government affairs program from scratch. Oh, that had to be a lot of fun daunting at times i'm sure but that okay so you've now set the record straight we're talking about elevators and escalators correct building transportation i'd love the description on your website too it's safe building transportation again it's hard to i don't always think of elevators and escalators as transportation but that's exactly what they are elevators and escalators building transportation is the most utilized form of public transportation in the united states with over 100 billion rides. So that's over 2.8 billion miles ridden every year. Compared to three quarters of that number is how many miles are driven on a highway each year. So why did NEI set up the government affairs operation in the first place? Were they facing some challenges in the policy world? Yes and no. The background has been developing codes. But what wasn't happening was a real follow-through on the adoption of those codes within the states and local jurisdictions. All construction codes are regulated at a state or local level. So the only federal construction codes are those that you would find in the Department of Defense for military housing, in federal building standards. GSA type. Exactly. And so we were realizing that jurisdictions were making changes to the model codes. They were... Um, omitting certain provisions, then there were inconsistencies between the elevator code and let's say the building code. So we realized we needed to get in there and, and work with those jurisdictions as well as the enforcement because a lot of times we know enforcement is relationships and the better relationship you can have with a jurisdiction, the more you might be able to address problems either before they arise or before they're widespread. So that is when we decided that we collectively decided that a government affairs program was needed. So you must have operations in every state. 
We do. As a trade association, we represent the major elevator manufacturers, which includes Otis Elevator, um, a very commonly a very common name that folks are used to seeing when it comes to passenger elevators. Uh, TK Elevator, Kone, Schindler, Fujitech, and Mitsubishi are the big six. Wow. Very international presence. And so these are global, um, often world leaders in the elevator building transportation niche. And so each one of those has a presence in all 50 states. So we need to have a relationship. We don't have an office in every state, but we have a relationship. And my team has built that over the years. Are there international counterparts to NEI? You have various counterparts, but they are all moving to a global building code. That's what they're working towards. Uh, the building codes that we follow for elevators and escalators in the United States is actually international because it is a combined effort between Canada and the United States. So we work with the Canadian Standards Association to develop the building codes that apply to North America. So what's on top of the priority list for NEI these days? We have a four-pronged priority that we call the LIFT initiative. It stands for Leadership, Influence, the Future, and Trust, which are core elements of what we need to be able to do to have a safe and thriving industry. And these four LIFT efforts we identified them because we thought if we can make a difference in these areas, it's going to be a game changer for the industry. The first is safety, and we have an overall goal of zero incidents and injuries. Obviously, their accidents happen, and there are times that folks get injured on a job site or during work, and we are putting together initiatives and efforts that we can do to try and prevent those. So we're looking at data, we're identifying those issues, and then we're focusing on the most common incidents, accidents, and scenarios that put our workers in risky positions. It's a dangerous job. Let's not ignore oh, sure that. It is. Uh, but if we can focus on the top issues, then we can really make a difference in the incidents and accidents. But the other main area is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right now, everyone is giving lip service to this issue. It's the hot topic du jour, and many folks are not creating sort of a core program in order to make a difference in this area. The building trades are notoriously low of having about a 4.4% diversity within the building trades. That does seem very low. And that's the construction trades overall. So it's plumbers, welders, general construction. And the elevator industry does not have better numbers on the labor side of the house. We're talking about the union, the labor, the field employees. So we've undertaken some pretty aggressive outreach, awareness. We're reaching out. We've reached out to over 110 organizations that represent diverse populations across the U.S. over the last year and a half to make them aware of recruitments, to let them know when jobs are available. And the elevator and escalator industry is the highest paying building trade. 
And so these are great jobs for kids that do not want to go to the traditional college, that don't want to carry college debt. And especially if we can look at folks from low-income areas, we can look at folks that have been underrepresented, this is a great opportunity for them to change their stars. And so this is a pet project of mine, and it is a priority of our board, bar none, and make sure no one has any question that the presidents of these elevator companies have made it their priority as well, which is huge to have that backing. That's great. But you're in town on business. I am. What are you doing at D.C.? A couple things. Um, our labor union is headquartered in Columbia, Maryland, uh, so I'm working on a few undertakings that we have and partnering with our labor union. Management and labor don't always get along, but we strive to find commonalities when we possibly can. Have some meetings here to talk about a new code product that we track all codes that have been adopted across the U.S. as well as local jurisdictions. So I'm meeting with the CEO of the Home Builders to talk about whether or not they would like to partner with us. Is this like an online portal? It is. It's a database that right now is only available to our members, but we are looking to broaden that on a subscription basis uh, towards the end of the year, which is really exciting. There's no other product like it. There's a lot of online products that can tell you what code might apply to a certain state or a local jurisdiction. Our product actually tracks the changes, so you don't have to do a side-by-side -side comparison if you're a general contractor or a builder. We provide that for you, and it's only been available to our members, and we're opening that up. So I'm reaching out to some partners here in the D.C. area, home builders, building owners and managers, um, and other stakeholders that might want to join with us in um, sponsoring this database uh, from the ground up. Yeah, that's great. If you've got a story you'd like to tell, or you have a recommendation of someone who would make a great guest on 80 Proof Politics, email us at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. That's 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. Hi, my name is Joe Grogan. And I'm Eric Ulan for DCEKG. DCEKG is all about the how and why of Washington, DC. What's going on? What's going on behind the headlines? We spend a lot of time talking about healthcare and economic policy, but frequently delve into trade policy and sometimes national security or whatever's happening on Capitol Hill. Between Joe and I, we have nearly five decades of Washington experience. We put that to work with our guests to explain to you what's going on in Washington. I always found myself calling Eric when I didn't understand what was happening and always found him to be really good at explaining to me some of the things that I wasn't seeing. And I hope our guests will get the same type of insights. I always found myself talking to Joe when I couldn't believe what I was seeing happening to understand exactly how the heck we got to where we were. Tune in to DCEKG anywhere podcasts or YouTubes are available. You won't regret it.
how'd you get started with them? Did they find you? The Nii? The Nii, yeah. Funny story. Uh, one of my mantras is you never know when relationships are going to come back around, just like you and I are reconnecting, and you solidify those relationships that you have. And after... I left the Bush administration, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later in the podcast. I went and worked at the National Association of Home Builders, and the current CEO, Jerry Howard, was the tax counsel at the time, so I've maintained that relationship, reconnecting on this new thing. But one of the areas that I covered as a legislative person within the home builders was various construction best practices, um, best management practices on a job site, uh, building codes associated with those requirements. So fast forward 20 years and someone that I worked with at the home builders was at a code meeting with the code guy from NEI said, hey, do you know anybody in the government affairs area? And they said, yeah, I know this young woman named Amy, and let me hook you up with her. Made the introduction, I interviewed, and they hired me for the government affairs job. So it was a contact from my past that helped make that connection. Did you start with them while you were still here in D.C.? No. Okay. I. So I had moved to Kansas and was the CEO of the state chamber, Um, I made the choice that it wasn't the right fit for me to stay at the Kansas Chamber. I went out on my own with a consulting, hung out my shingle, as they say. AJB Strategies. Yep, AJB Strategies. And I was contacted pretty quickly after that. uh, Once I had put up a website and done all the stuff you do to reach out to former friends and former colleagues, I shouldn't say former friends, friends and former colleagues, to let them know what you were doing and create that network and provide information about, hey, I'm available if you know anything, and this came of that outreach. That's great. I wanted to ask you about the Kansas Chamber of Commerce, because that's, that's a big deal. To be CEO of any state's Chamber of Commerce is quite an accomplishment. So I was recruited from D.C. to move back to Kansas, my home state, Um, and it was really a great opportunity. I'm really glad I took advantage of it. There are some global leader companies, uh, Garmin, Hallmark, uh, Coke Industries that are in the state of Kansas. I was one of only three female state chamber representatives or CEOs across the U.S. at the time and I was the youngest and it was a big job and it had a lot of long hours because you meet with businesses all across the state. I learned a lot. I learned a lot of things I would do differently in the next job which I hope I'm being more successful today. I think that's a sign of any good job, right? But it just the it just wasn't a good fit for me and uh, and so we parted ways very amicably but I think we both agreed that I wasn't the right fit for them and the job wasn't the right fit for me and 
I would say to any of the listeners to be able to have that kind of a conversation with an employer was liberating. Um, I was very nervous about going into that kind of a meeting, and I don't think they thought it was going to go well either. Yeah. Um, but well, you know, without telling dirty secrets, what was it that wasn't right for you? I came to the table with a background of reaching across the aisle to build coalitions and bridge those gaps of policy or attitude or approach. The Kansas Chamber has traditionally been very conservative and was not interested in some of the coalition building undertakings that I thought could be valuable, working with the Democrat governor for an example. It was very much as a, on an as-needed basis and not a broader relationship building construct. Gotcha. You, you hinted at this. I imagine it was a big time constraint as well because you're probably traveling all over the state. And you drive most of the time. Um, I was able to fly a few times to the western side of the state, but you, you know, Kansas is heavily populated on the eastern side of the state, but you do have some larger towns and important businesses that are out in the Flint Hills and pass to Dodge City and Liberal and some of the states that are on the Colorado and Oklahoma and borders. That was a long trek to be in a car making those drives and at a time where you didn't have great cell phone coverage yeah. so you couldn't do business when you were in the car like like we're used to now but um i also think that it, it was that much time away from home you mentioned your time at the home builders you were in government affairs there legislative director right yes for, for how long for environmental policy oh okay so i was there about four years um i came directly from the bush administration unfortunately president bush 41 george hw was not re-elected which was a crushing blow to those of us moderate republicans and I proudly have my pink slip still from the Clinton administration thanking me for my service, but letting me know that my services were no longer needed. What were you doing in the administration? I was a special assistant to the head of Congressional and Legislative Affairs. Plus, I had some special projects. I did the Kuwaiti oil fires work. I did some investigation on whether or not we were going to open a Region 11 in Alaska. That was really um for me, it was really exciting to be very young and given some of these opportunities that I didn't think at that age that I would have that exposure. Uh, I, I tell people all the time that I had to um, knock elbows with some of the Texas oil field roughnecks because Red Adair was the oh, firefighter wow. that capped the oil yeah. wells in Kuwaiti and, and, and excuse me, in Kuwait and, uh, He's definitely a big personality, too, and you got to hold your own, so I learned, I learned that. But, and so I was there for four years, and, well, three and a half-ish, and, uh, and then I was, had the opportunity to go to the home builders. Yeah, how'd that happen? So you got your pink slip in hand. I went out just like anybody else and looked at a bunch of different jobs, and 
regardless of political affiliation, the experience of working in the administration, you build a network of contacts, many of which do not change when the administration changes. So you have the government employees that stay there. And when you're able to build those relationships, um, a trade association like the National Association the National Association of Home Builders really wants to bring somebody who can get them back into an agency. And so going in and managing environmental policy, I turned right around and worked on various issues. Um, one of which is, is a little bit of a funny story that late in the wee hours when Congress used to actually adjourn um, towards the winter break at the end of session, um, we worked on Title 10 of the Affordable Housing Act, which if anyone remembers or has bought a house recently, you have to have a lead disclosure statement. Oh, sure. So I wrote this language. We got it passed uh, in the wee hours of the morning when there literally was one person on the house floor <laughs> holding the chamber. And... Two days later, I started at the National Association of Home Builders, and it was my mission to overturn Title X of the Affordable <laughs> Housing Act. Isn't that funny how that could work? <laughs> we did not, and, by well, the way. I was going to ask, because clearly you still have to do your disclosure. Right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, you joined the Bush administration after having worked for Senator Dole? We were in Congressman Whitaker's office together. Right. So... I had worked for Dole before that, maintained relationships with the Dole's office, with Senator Dole's office while we were in Congressman Whitaker's office. And when Congressman Whitaker retired, we were all faced with what was our next challenge. And one of the first things you do is you go talk to your members of Congress. So I went over and met with folks that I had worked with in both Senator Nancy Landon Kassebaum's office as well as Senator Dole's office. Senator Dole had lost in the primary to H.W. Bush, right? and the administration had offered him an opportunity to put forward some names to come into the administration, and I was a pretty easy appointment because I had no political baggage. I was in my early 20s and hadn't really done anything, but I was lucky enough that I was one of the names that Senator Dole put forward, so when we, were, when we left... Bob Whitaker's office on mm -hmm. the House side is when I joined the Bush administration. Gotcha. Your first job in town was with Bob? It was answering the phones uh, and doing flag requests and setting up uh, photo ops with Senator Dole. And then... Securing fields for the Rowdies. Yes. The Rowdy softball team, world famous from... from Legacy uh, lives on. Right, Bob Whitaker's office. We, there have been a lot of people who have come through and played on the Rowdy softball team. Well, I have to tell you, this is exactly why we're sitting here today, is because I recently did an episode with Tom Sullivan, and he mentioned the Rowdies. And I just thought, oh my gosh, i got to get Amy on the show. So Tom Sullivan, I hired as an intern to work in the Bush administration, is how that relationship started he's of course gone to bigger and more glorious heights <laughs> he talked about his path as well if i recall he was an intern at the epa yep that was the i was the special assistant who hired him in intergovernment affairs 
at the US EPA during the Bush administration. And so it's funny, but those are the relationships that you carry on through the course of your career. So I recently learned something about you that I didn't know. If I knew it, I forgot it. But you also were an English major. English and poli-sci. And poli-sci. So you had a little bit of a political bone to, right. all along, huh? Did you decide early on that you wanted to be in D.C., or is this something did, after graduation that just came up? So there's a little bit of a funny story I tell people, and that is when you grow up, most people look to what their parents do and often emulate what their parents do, and that was true for my sisters, my oldest sister became a teacher like my mother, and my middle sister became an architect like my father, and I became a Republican like our next-door neighbor. <laughs> and so our next-door neighbor growing up, her father had been the head of the Republican Party in the state of Kansas. She had contacts with Senator Kassebaum and Senator Dole and the others in the Kansas uh, contingency here in Washington, D.C., and in high school, I did presidential classroom, which oh, sure. is a week in D.C. to learn about different issues and visit various things, including the Capitol. And and that's when I really caught Potomac fever. And so during college, I tried to pave a pathway of knowing I was going to have to communicate, which is the English mm -hmm. major part of it. Yeah and the poli-sci, policy, research aspect. So this was a very determined path. It was. And I have helped others, sometimes giving them advice about different ways they can look at their college career and decide where they want to go. Today, though, kids have so many choices. Oh, I think yeah. when we were in college, back when the earth was cooling, <laughs> uh, it was, you You had like five majors that people did. I know that's an over-exaggeration, but it was just a very limited group. And now you can basically frame out whatever major it is that works for you. And I think policy is a very important role. Policy development, regulatory development, I think responsible regulations is really important. And I've seen both, well, actually I've, I've been on what are considered to be three of the stool legs of government, Capitol Hill, the administration, and lobbying. And from all of those different perspectives, people spend a lot of time trying to fix bad policy, whether it be bad legislation or bad regulations. So I think going in with the ability to negotiate and Compromise for compromise sake isn't productive. Compromise has become a dirty word, hasn't it? Absolutely. But but I don't believe that every single issue is a down-the-middle partisan issue either. I do believe there are areas of compromise that don't lose track of your philosophical and core values, but you're still going to move the ball forward. I think that's great. Did you do the classic summer internship while you were in college? When I came out in high school, I wanted to come back. And so that's when I came and I did the internship with Senator Dole's office. Mm -hmm. And that then segued into the opportunity to work for him before moving over to the House side and working for Congressman Whitaker. 
But it's funny because all of the different jobs, and, and I would say this in general when I mentor young people, especially young women, is the negative of a job is as important to learn as the positive. Because you can take away what you would not do as much as what you want to emulate in your next position or if you were I used to say if I was queen for a day I would do it differently and that has helped me I think move into where I am today with a really great job with a great team and some pretty cool stuff we're working on I think that's great advice for any job because I like to ask my guests if they were speaking to someone wanting to start in D.C. or maybe do a career pivot like you've done a few times. What's a good piece of advice? A few times, yes. I give a piece of advice to young people that I mentor. And I would tell anybody that's looking for a job to do this, and actually I still do it every year to make sure that I'm in the job that suits me for how my life is at that time. But I tell folks, you take three sheets of paper, and on the first sheet of paper you're going to write down the jobs you've had. You don't have to reiterate your resume, but it's really the jobs you've had. On the second piece of paper, you're going to write down your skills. What are those skills? Good communicator, budgeting, uh, multitasker. So these things may not be specifically identified in a reference, a resume, or a job description. And the third piece of paper is what do you want your life to be? What are those things that are priorities for you at that moment in time, at that time in your life? Is it work from home? Is it work with animals? Is it have flex time? Is it, uh, you know, get paid $250,000? Whatever those things are, write them down. So then you try and find the synergies and you try and create like a Venn diagram, so to speak, of where the intersections, when you're looking at job descriptions, that pull things from each one of these sheets of paper. And That's if, great advice. If you find a job that hits a couple of them, maybe you can outline something in your cover letter that brings in a skill that may not be specifically identified in the job description. Or may not show up on your resume in the right way so you can highlight something and you just have different things that come into your lives and you you make changes and these three sheets of paper can help reflect that so you then can prioritize where are you today or where are you this year or what are you looking to do next year and I found it's helpful that's wonderful well, Amy it's been a real thrill catching up with you and having you on 80 proof politics and just remember no matter what you think about the current state of politics today, whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. It's been a pleasure, and hopefully I've given some anecdotes that folks may take and find valuable, and if not, hopefully we've entertained them. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we have. So thank you for listening. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. 
Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.